Hey guys, it's part two with Jenna Marino. If you are interested in listening to part one, part one is Jenna's loss story. So three loss stories with a blighted ovum, a miscarriage, and a stillbirth. I purposefully separated these into two separate episodes because if you're just here for the rainbow baby birth story, then that is what we're digging into today in part two. My co-host is Sabrina, one of my partner doulas here in Charlotte, North Carolina, who helped me with part one and is here to interject in part two. So I'm so thankful to Jenna and to Sabrina. And this episode is her rainbow baby and the light after loss. Enjoy. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Okay, just a little something before we get started today, and that is, what happens if you don't take Birth Story Academy? So like, let's say you're pregnant, that's why you're listening to the Birth Story podcast, and you're preparing for a hospital birth that's upcoming. And of course, this podcast gives you tons of free information, right? But like, do you really understand the stages of labor? How to know when you're in labor? What if you have to have an induction? What about a cesarean section? What about all of the decisions that you have to make once you get to the hospital? So you get there and then they put you in triage. Birth Story Academy walks you through all the things that happen, like that rapid fire with like monitoring and blood work and questions and IV ports and do you want an epidural? I don't know, do you? In Birth Story Academy, we literally break down all of those decisions pros, cons, risks, benefits, intuition. And like we get into it. We make birth plans. We do birth visions. We listen to birth affirmations and parenting affirmations. And like at the end of it, like you know exactly what's going to happen when you go into labor and when you get to the hospital. What's going to happen after you give birth? Newborn care preferences. How to take care of your baby. So I guess what I'm getting at is... If you're not in Birth Story Academy, what's your plan, right? Like, I want to be your teacher. I want you to come join me in Birth Story Academy and let me walk you through all of the decisions that you have to make if you're having a hospital birth and how to have body autonomy and how to have informed consent and informed refusal. 
Like, I'm going to teach you and your partner, if you have one, everything that you need to know about birthing in a hospital so that you can walk in that door with some swagger, with some confidence, like wash that anxiety away because you learned everything you needed to learn in Birth Story Academy and you are ready to crush that birth, right? Okay, let's do it. And let's get to this episode. Jenna and Sabrina, thanks for continuing this story. Jenna, you just so gracefully walked us through your first three pregnancies and losses. We just heard about the birth of Scarlett at 22 weeks, two days, your retained placenta and going home empty handed. And so... We're going to pivot in this episode, part two, to talk about the birth story of Liam, your rainbow baby, your fourth pregnancy after three losses, and picking up where we left off in part one, it was just after Christmas. Tell us about the six months between saying goodbye to Scarlett and making the decision to try again. Yeah. So immediately after Scarlett's birth, well, I should say in the coming days after Scarlett's birth, I, I am a very like, what's next? I need answers. I need a plan kind of person. And so I believe her birth was on a, Thursday. And by that Monday, I was calling my OB's office. I was like, I want to get some testing done. I want to look at my genetic panel. I want to look at my husband's genetic panel. I know Turner syndrome is not something that is on from a parent. It is just a mutation that happens. So to kind of go back a little bit of what Turner syndrome is, it's when a female baby has two, I'm sorry, only has one X chromosome instead of. So that was just something that happened in fertilization. And our risk to have another child with Turner syndrome would be no higher than anybody else conceiving. And so it's not something that came from one of us. But I still at this point, three pregnancies in with no babies, I wanted to rule everything. So I called my OB and I said, I want all the tests. I want to look at my genetics. I want to look at my husband's genetics. I know we're waiting for the genetic report on Scarlett to confirm that she did indeed have Turner syndrome, but I want all the testing and to make sure that when we are ready to have another baby, that there's nothing else that we need to be doing or worried about. Did they want you to start any medication prophylactically like baby aspirin or like continue your prenatals was there anything they told you to do for your body so i did continue with prenatal vitamins i never stopped taking them we decided that when i was ready to try to conceive again i would do baby aspirin just prophylactic just in case because to kind of jump to the blood work results everything came back normal so there was no clotting disorders found or anything that indicated i needed baby aspirin or anything more than that but we just kind of decided it's not going to hurt um and at this point 
let's go ahead and do it when you decide to get pregnant again. The other thing we decided to do was progesterone supplementations. So I did vaginal progesterone supplement suppositories with Liam's pregnancy as well through the whole first trimester. What's the thinking behind progesterone and baby aspirin? Oh, the baby aspirin. So we use a lot for repeat loss in case there is any kind of clotting disorder or concern that's leading to multiple miscarriages. I don't know. Maybe Sabrina knows more about why they exactly use it. I know why we use it in our IVF patients, but. From my understanding, there was a study done in re-miscarriages or people where their placenta was having like clotting issues that the baby aspirin just thins the blood enough to prevent blood clots in the placenta and like preventing oxygenation and like nutrition through the umbilical cord. Okay. I could be wrong, but Hmm. I think that's the reason. We can always post in the show notes a study that could clarify that. I just know it's very common in our fertility clients to be on baby aspirin and also a progesterone supplement. So I was wondering if Jenna, the fertility nurse, had some more insight on that. In ACOG right now and text it to you. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> well, with our fertility patients, I specifically work with IVF patients and we put all of them on aspirin because of the medications that they were on caused them to have higher than normal estrogen levels. And that puts you at risk for a blood clot. So that's why we put our fertility patients on aspirin, whether you had a miscarriage in the past or not. Um, But as far as just using it for repeat loss, because I mostly work with IVF patients, I didn't work in what I called the front of the clinic with the less, less intervention patients. So I don't know as much about that, but I just know it's related to, could there be a clotting issue? Okay. So out Um, of extreme precaution, you put yourself on baby aspirin because it doesn't hurt. Right. Could help, but doesn't hurt. Right. And same with progesterone. So progesterone, so you need progesterone to support a pregnancy. And after ovulation, not to get all in depth on your cycle, but when a pregnancy occurs, the corpus luteum causes you to produce progesterone and you need that hormone to be elevated for pregnancy and it helps sustain your pregnancy, keep your uterine lining nice and thick and everything growing. And some people naturally have a lower progesterone level with like doesn't climb as high as it needs to in pregnancy. And then that can lead to miscarriage. We never tested my progesterone levels. We just said, again, it's not going to hurt. You're not going to have too much progesterone. So it's better to go on it and rule that out as a possibility than it is to need it and not be on it. Got it. So your genetic testing for you and your husband were completely normal. Yes. But one thing I had from our previous interview with Scarlett's birth was that your genetic testing had come back also normal. Did they ever explain to you how you had a genetically normal assigned female baby at 10 weeks and then at 20 weeks had a baby with Turner's syndrome? So, no. The best answer I got was that blood work is 98% accurate. That's very frustrating. I got the, you had bad luck. (laughs) And... No answers, really, because that's what I said. And so actually jumping forward a little bit, 
when it came time to decide if we wanted to do that blood work for Liam's pregnancy, I had a hard time deciding because I said, well, we did it last time and it was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like it let me down. So that was a whole nother decision to make because it was, do you rely on these tests that aren't maybe necessarily a hundred percent correct. So yeah, no real explanation as to why her initial genetics came back normal when her genetics came back from her body after birth. It did confirm that she did indeed have Turner syndrome. Okay. So we had the official diagnosis, which we were pretty sure of anyhow. So, but that helped. It helped to know, it helped to know for sure what happened and what led us there. And so recovering in those six months after getting all these answers back and test results. And I remember seeing my OB and she told me, you know, you, you had a delivery, your body grew a pregnancy. ACOG says you should wait 18 months to have another baby. What? How you're going to want, hold on. How old are you? First of all, at the time I was 25. Okay. So that is interesting because I was told three months and mine was a 19 week loss, not 18 months. I mean, I just, okay. I mean, we're going to go, we're going to go with like, this is what your doctor said. I'm just like, wow, that's a really long time to wait in between, you know? And, and, you know, just if you were had been a little bit older, like let me, you know, I was like thirty seven and thirty six. Sorry, when my first was born, and the, and I said to the midwife, "How long do I wait to get pregnant again?" Because everything says twelve to eighteen months, and she said, "At your age, Heidi, you don't wait." And I was like, "Oh, okay. So is it healthy for my body?" And she was like, "Yeah." So at twenty five years old. They tell you the healthiest thing for your body is to wait 18 months. So just to clarify, 18 months between deliveries. So that would mean waiting at least eight months. Oh, okay. That makes me feel so much better. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. I was like, man, that seems like a really long time in between. Okay. 18 months between deliveries. Okay. All right. I can get on board with that number. Okay. So eight months. Okay. Yeah. And I was, thanks for the recommendation. We'll see what we want to do, but I wasn't healed emotionally yet in a place where I wanted to get pregnant anyhow, but I wasn't sure I wanted to wait eight months. So I did sign up for like different support groups online. I was on some messaging messenger boards of what to expect and stuff, talking with other people who have experienced losses. And then I decided that I was going to go to grief counseling. And so I did start seeing a grief counselor and there was just so much to work through. I mean, I was mad at my body and mad at the universe that this was happening and how did I get pregnant three times and I had no baby and there was just so much that I needed to work through before I felt like I was going to be in a good place to get pregnant again. Now, that being said, my husband and I had decided that whole time, while we weren't trying, we never did anything to prevent getting pregnant either. And so like if it happened, but we weren't ready to try again, counseling helped. I would highly recommend anybody who experienced loss, whether it is what they call a chemical pregnancy, which is probably more of what I had with that second loss or a full-term stillborn, it doesn't matter. A loss is a loss and you feel that and you need to work through that. And I 
could not recommend seeing somebody like a grief counselor who specializes in something like that enough that it was so helpful and really helped in our my healing and getting me back to a place where I felt good about trying to get pregnant again. And you said you had quit working, correct? Did you ever go back to work? I did. So I had quit working. And at the time, I wasn't really sure. I didn't tell them how long I was going to be out because I didn't know how long Scarlett's pregnancy was going to continue on. And it ended up only being about two weeks until I delivered her. And then I took a six week maternity leave after her delivery. And then I went back. So I was out of, I was gone from work for about two months total when it was all said and done. And then I did go back to work and actually that was hard. It was not easy to go back to work and to help support other women trying to start their families, going through their own journeys while going through mine. It wasn't easy. And I changed my role a little bit. One of the nurses I worked with said, you know, you're hurting, like there's a lot going on your plate. And I don't know, you tell me, but I don't know that you want to be the one going out and meeting with every patient and talking with them anymore. Do you want to kind of sit back and do more of the chart work and the paperwork and, you know, some of the more behind the scenes stuff and didn't want to go sit with everybody all the time. And so I was so thankful that my job allowed me to do that because I needed that kind of separation a little bit. It was easier to talk to somebody on the phone or through like the messaging app than it was to actually have to face some of these people. And some of these patients knew I was pregnant. You know, they'd seen me with a bump back in December before I was out. And a couple of times I ran into patients again in the hallways or whatever when I came back. And there were a lot of looks and stares and nobody wants to ask And I don't blame them. I'm their nurse and they don't know me that well, but they knew I wasn't far enough along to actually have given birth to a healthy full-term baby, but they knew I was pregnant. And it's just a lot of heaviness around a lot of that. So it was just easier for me to step back and not be face-to-face with patients all day, every day at that point. I had one question too during that transition time. Did your milk come in? It did. It did. So it wasn't as I as bad. I shouldn't say as bad as I was expecting. I had read some stuff online and that it can happen differently for everybody. So it did come in. I leaked, but I wasn't super uncomfortable or anything like that. And it took I think maybe like two weeks to completely dry up to where I wasn't leaking anymore. Or and I was just super careful per the instructions of my OB not to stimulate production at all. So like when I took a shower, like I didn't face the water and let stimulation happen over the nipples, or you know, there wasn't like I wasn't touching my breasts or nipples or causing any kind of stimulation that would make milk production. Did you do like Sudafed or binding or cabbage leaves or, you know, peppermint oil? Did you do anything to stop it from coming in? Not really. So I did wear like tight fitted bras and stuff and I had cabbage leaves, but then I never really used them and I didn't need Sudafed or anything. And actually when we talk about Liam later, I chose to dry out my milk at one point and totally different experience. Sabrina, go. You had a question. Yeah, just it is calm to still like produce milk. And I like to refer it's like your body weeping for you and like crying with you. 
some women choose to, or some birthing people choose to pump because they don't want to give up the pregnancy or that their body made a life. So again, there's no shame in like drying up. Like I chose to dry up just like Jenna did, but I've known some birthing people who pumped for a year and donated it all to NICUs because they needed that for their healing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an option too. So so both of you guys dried up your milk and you said, Jenna, about two weeks. Sabrina, yeah, was, a- was that the same two weeks? Yeah, about two weeks. So Jenna, so you go back to work, you've got all this testing, you're like, okay, eight months, but we're not trying. (laughs) I'm like, I know how this story ends without you even going into it. But like, so when did you get pregnant again with Liam? Yeah, so I got pregnant, I conceived in May of 2020. (laughs) How many cycles did you have in between Scarlett and Liam? Three. Three full cycles. Okay, and you conceived in May. So three losses in 2019, birth in December, and then five months later, you're pregnant again. Yes, and we had just decided, so my third cycle, I got pregnant. We had decided after my second cycle that we would go ahead and start trying and never really had to start trying. It was almost like it was gifted to us. So we're very thankful for that and nervous, of course. Yeah. So we know this is your rainbow baby. So we know that Liam is here, but how did your pregnancy go? I was a nervous wreck because it didn't feel at this point, I felt jaded. I it didn't feel like I could get far enough along that I ever felt safe. And I had some anxieties to work through to the point where I would even tell my husband, you know, even when we bring him home, we're still not safe. There are things like SIDS, babies just pass away. We are never in the clear. We could lose him still at any point. Like we're not guaranteed this. And that was something I really had to talk through with the grief counselor and work on because it, it was stealing some of the joy. Um, I didn't enjoy Liam's pregnancy. And, and I hate to say that um, because I always wanted to be pregnant and I wanted to experience that and the joy. And I just couldn't. I, I was so anxious every step of the way. And even going for every ultrasound or every appointment, listening to his heartbeat. It was always like, okay, great. But I hope it's there next time. And it was just really hard to move past that and accept that something good was going to come of this. Talk about nervous before his anatomy scan, because everything was beautiful with Scarlett's pregnancy up until then. So we went ahead and scheduled the anatomy scan with Liam's pregnancy with maternal fetal medicine right off the bat. Like we're just going to get a more in-depth scan right from the get-go um, and go from there. And of course, my little buddy wouldn't calm down. And we were told at the end, we didn't get enough pictures of his heart. Can't say anything's wrong or not wrong. So you'll have to come back in two weeks. And those were the Stop longest it, Jenna. two weeks of my Stop life. <laughs> yeah. Girl, you couldn't get a break. No. And everything else they said was fine and checked out perfectly. But like the heart is a big 
thing that really yeah. matters. I want to know that his heart's okay. Did you and even I, have a gut feeling at this point? Like, or was your body like, I'm not capable of intuition? Yeah, no, I didn't trust my intuition anymore because I said to my husband, actually, the day before Scarlett's anatomy scan, I said to him, I was driving home from work and I said, I'm so excited to see her tomorrow. I said, because I just know everything's okay. I'm not worried. I just want to see her. And then it wasn't. And so at this point, I didn't trust myself at all. I didn't trust my body to do what it was supposed to do. I didn't trust that I knew what was going on. So those next two weeks were misery and filled with anxiety. And I remember saying, do I have to wait two weeks? Can we try again later today? Can I come back later? And they were like, no, let's give him more time to grow. So then I was like, are you seeing something that you're not telling me you're seeing? Like, no, it's just normal to come back in two weeks. So... We waited those two weeks. Did you do the um, Doppler every day? Of course. Okay. <laughs> of course. I had to. Yeah. And we went back in two weeks and got the clear. And it was hard because, yes, here I am with the doctors telling me, okay, we got what we needed. Everything looks beautiful. But I was still like, are you sure? Are you sure? So that was hard. And then... With Liam's pregnancy, it was just nothing was ever going to be easy, it seemed. Around 30 weeks, they started saying that my stomach was measuring really big. So I was always measuring big. They scheduled me for an ultrasound at 32 weeks to check on his size, which at his anatomy scan, he was appropriate for size on target, like a day or two ahead, maybe, but nothing worth noting. So at 30 weeks, my belly started measuring big. She said, let's do an ultrasound. Let's do a 32 week ultrasound to check on the size of the baby and see where things are at. So we did at 32 weeks, they were measuring him just shy of 36 weeks. So they told me he was huge. These things, audience, are plus or minus two pounds. Okay. So like they can give you like what you're measuring at this gestational age or whatever. But they also may say like your baby's four pounds. Well, I mean, that could be like two pounds or six pounds, you know. So, okay. So just like let's put it out there, everyone. They told me Jagger was like 11 pounds at 40 weeks. And he was, I mean, he was nine. But, you know, we were the plus or minus two on the minus two side. So sometimes I'm like, take these things with a grain of salt. So they scare you to death at 32 weeks and are like, you have a big baby. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point is the first time I heard my OB say, if your baby continues to grow at this rate, you're going to have over an 11 pound baby at term. Do you know what I would have said? Great. Healthy. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) And I I remember just saying to her like, can my five foot two frame handle that? Maybe not, but maybe. <laughs> and she was like, um, we'll see. Yeah. Should be okay. But if he's 11 pounds or over, we'll just schedule you for a C-section. I was like, well, that's not really what I want. She was like, well, we're going to, let's schedule you for another growth ultrasound at 36 weeks. So in a month from now, and we'll see where he's at. Maybe he'll slow down. Yeah. So I go on with the pregnancy, trying not to worry too much about his size. I can't really control it. I didn't have gestational diabetes or anything like that. And honestly, I hadn't gained that much weight. Um, 
by the end of the pregnancy, I think I gained 21 pounds. Okay, but I see this over and over again in my doula practice, Jenna. When you are five, four eleven, five foot, five foot one, five foot two, I'm five foot three. I measured at forty seven weeks fundal height when I was forty weeks. I was like, you can measure forty seven weeks, you know. If you have a short torso, there is nowhere to go besides out. And if you are blessed to be five eight with a long torso, you have a small fundal height. I mean, so part of this is a being five foot two with a short torso let's just put that out there everybody okay so sorry 36 weeks they do it again yeah and at this point they tell me i have an eight and a half pound baby at 36 weeks and that i should do a 39 week induction because he's already going to be over 10 pounds and if we get over 11 i'll have to do a c-section so we should just schedule my 39-week induction to get him out before he's too big. Okay, I'm angry about a million things, but this is a teaching podcast. So what I will yeah. say is the ARRIVE trial does show that a 39-week induction yields the lowest cesarean rates. Okay, we do have much higher C-section rates at 41, 42, 43 weeks, three weeks gestation, right? So like... The sooner you are induced, the lower the cesarean rates are. Like, that's data. It's out there. It's great. It's fine. It's not individualized care, right? Now, I watched your husband walk into the room also. He's not a small person, okay? So you're 5'2". You have a rather large spouse. You know, there is a balance from the midwives and the gynecologists and the obstetricians that are guiding a 39-week induction. As a doula who has a very low cesarean rate of 7%, you know, I wouldn't have disagreed with them that a five foot two measuring big baby with the data from the ARRIVE trial, a 39-week induction is sounds reasonable, right? The problem is these ultrasounds aren't always that accurate. And as someone who delivered an almost 11-pound baby vaginally at 43 weeks, I believe that you can get a baby out most of the time with good positioning, you know? Okay, so they, do you even question it at this point? Or are you like, this is my fourth pregnancy and I want to go home with a baby and I don't want to have a C-section. So I'll do what you I say. It was just in tears because my whole, I mean, I went from wanting to be a midwife to this and I was like, but I wanted a natural birth. I don't even want an epidural. Now you're talking, I'm going to have to have a C-section. And I don't know. What to do. I just want to hold my baby. So if you tell me that getting induced at 39 weeks is my best chance at bringing home this healthy baby, let's just do it. I, I throw everything to the wind. I don't care anymore. I just want my baby to be healthy and here and come home with me. So sign me up. And that resonates so deeply with the audience, right? Because it is absolutely true in our society that like the risk way, like the medical team is always going to err on the side of like less about the experience and more about the safety, 
right? And that's such a balance when we want to have a spontaneous birth, unmedicated, with a doula, you know, all the things. And that's an experience. And that doesn't always sometimes involve like the safety or the risk factors or the, you know, vaginal birth versus a cesarean birth, that type of thing. So our clients, I mean, Sabrina and I's clients, Jenna, are faced with this like every day, all the time. It's so frustrating. But, you know, being on a podcast that's getting broadcast to 200,000 people right now is really important that we say, you know, data shows that you do have the lowest chance of a cesarean section with a 39 week induction. But as doulas, we also believe in your body's innate wisdom, your body's ability to give birth, your innate intuition. And you got to balance those things. What we don't want listeners to the podcast to hear is my doctor told me I had no choices. I had to do. I, I, there was no control. Right. So giving you back some of that control. So I hope at the end of this, Jenna, like, did you feel like in some way you chose it? Um. Yes. So I do feel like I said, OK, I chose to go with that plan and be okay with it. And that seemed like the best option for bringing home the healthy baby that I desperately wanted. Sitting where I'm at now and looking back, I always tell my husband the where we went wrong was I should have had a doula. I shouldn't have relied on my own knowledge and I needed somebody to reassure me and support me and to not let that anxiety get the best of me and say, go ahead for the 39 week induction, because that just, you're too anxious to wait. So just do it. Um, I don't know that if I would have waited for my body to go into labor on its own, that anything would have worked out differently. I really don't, but there's always next time. Yeah. And that's so true what you said. We don't know, right? Like even the best doulas in the world still have a 7% cesarean rate, you know? Like there's like even in home birth, there's still a 6% transfer rate, you know? Like even when we do everything right, we still have to leave room for the baby to make their own decisions on how they want to be born. So I would, I usually ask the question, how did you know you were in labor? (laughs) But in this case, we know you were induced. So let's talk about that induction. So what time of day did they bring you in? 8 p.m. Perfect. Is that because they had done a vaginal exam and knew you needed cervical ripening? Yes. So my OB told me I was about a centimeter dilated and mid position. So my cervix was starting to come forward and soft. She said maybe like 50% of face, but that the best route would be to start with ripening. Okay. And I right away was like, not side attack, right? Right. Because it gave you diarrhea and vomiting. So sick. And I got the whole, well, you are on a really high dose because you were delivering a loss. And when you have a normal full-term pregnancy, we don't use a high dose like that. So we will use Cytotec, but such a small dose, you're not going to have the same experience. And I was like, well, what about Cervidil? Good job, Jenna. That's exactly what I was going to say. How about Cerverdale? Like same outcome, hopefully, but maybe, maybe it'd be a little gentler. I don't know. I'm getting really bad flashbacks of the other birth I had. I really don't want to do that again. And she 
just kept saying it's different. It's a different dose. You're going to be fine. You just need to trust. (sighs) Which is very hard for a lost mom to do. Trust. Jenna, with Scarlett's birth, you said a resident delivered you. Is that the case at this hospital that your OB was not going to deliver you? Or were you, when you were admitted for your induction, seeing an OB or a resident? So with Scarlett's pregnancy, it wasn't a resident who delivered, I think because it just all happened so fast. My OB wasn't there at the time. I actually switched OBs after that. And not, I had a great, I like, I loved my OB. She supported me a lot through Scarlett's loss, but I wanted to deliver at a different hospital with a different doctor. I just, I didn't want to go back there. And that was where I went for my loss, not where I wanted to go for my life. And I actually switched to a doctor that we recommended all the time to our fertility patients. And I was There was a big part of me that wanted to go and see a midwife, but again, the anxiety of it all and this being a high risk pregnancy in the sense of so many losses and all the ultrasounds and wanting to see MFM. And I just didn't, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So I went with one of the more highly recommended OBs in our area. And actually this OB that I used for Liam She works in a practice with all women and she was going to, she delivers her own patients. They deliver their own patients. The only way she wouldn't deliver you is if she was out of town or something, then another doctor from her practice would come in and deliver you. But otherwise you were going to be delivered by her. So for Liam's pregnancy, it was her managing my labor. Now it's still a teaching hospital. There are residents and I was okay with that. Being a nursing student myself, I know you have to learn, um, So the residents were there upon admission for my induction and they're the ones who like actually inserted the medication and things like that. But it was all pre-planned with her in the office. Got it. So they start with side attack. Do they do that in combination with the Foley bulb or do they just do the side attack to begin with? They did the Cytotec and the Foley bulb together for Liam. Okay. So a couple of things, audience. There is low and slow, which is a three to five day long induction, which can be one small intervention at a time, or you can build momentum by partnering things together, like a prostaglandin Cytotec and the Foley bulb, the balloon. Again, Jenna, it sounds like you had the Foley, not the cook, which was the balloon just on on the inside rather than on both sides. And then, you know, often from there, they can even add Pitocin. So what was sort of the regimen, like you had Cytotec and a Foley bulb. How far did that get you in your induction? So they came in hourly and tugged on the Foley bulb, kind of to see if it puts more pressure there, see how close, if it's going to fall out. And it didn't for a while. But I will say that I ended up back in the bathroom again with the side attack and I was very angry. I didn't vomit this time, but I had really bad stomach pain and diarrhea again. And I was like, I told you this was going to happen. So that didn't set me off in a great start to things. But and you know what, Jenna, that was you trusting your body. You were trusting your body and they weren't trusting your body. So that makes me really angry. But you only, so then you only did one dose. Please tell me you only did one dose of side attack. Yeah, I said absolutely no. Okay, gotcha. This is, no. Okay, audience, Um, if you take side attack and you get diarrhea, don't have any more doses of side attack, please. No, it was horrible. So 
we did the one dose of side attack and then they were tugging on the Foley bulb. And I want to say like four hours, the Foley bulb came out. Okay. So they checked me and I was three to four centimeters. They said, perfect. The Foley did its job. So now your cervix is ripe. Were you having contractions? Very mildly and intermittently. Okay. So they wanted to start Pitocin. I was okay with that. You know, I'm here to have a baby and I'm not contracting. So let's do it. So they started low. They start at one and then they go up every hour. I think it was. Depends on the institution. In our city, we start at two and go up every 30 minutes. Okay. It might've been every 30 minutes. I don't really remember to tell you the truth. This kind of fades out a little, but so they started the Pitocin and we're going up and I starting to feel some contractions a little bit after a couple hours more consistently. Now they were reading them more consistent than I was actually feeling. So around they had me on like a 10, eight or 10 on the Pitocin and they couldn't go up anymore because I was having them too frequently that they couldn't safely adjust the dose anymore. Because your body went into spontaneous labor, right? So at some point an induction becomes an augmentation. So now you're in labor on your own. And so now they're augmenting it with Pitocin. So they can't go up anymore. Yes. So they checked me and I was still three to four centimeters. And they didn't like that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, it's only been a couple hours. They're like, well, we got to do something. Can't go up on your Pitocin anymore and you're not changing. It's been like two hours, two and a half hours-ish. Um, Which is a very short period of time, audience. And there's yeah. other things in play. You could have had progression in effacement, the thinning. You could have had progression in if the cervix was mid-position to anterior now. You could have had progression and the baby was at a negative three and is now at a negative two station. I mean, like, it drives me crazy that they just give you dilation, you know, and just blame it on that. There are so many other things that show progress in a labor. And two and a half hours in early labor labor you're not an active labor okay we really shouldn't be doing much but I understand you know I understand what they said you're there to have a baby but just so the audience knows you know two and a half hours is very aggressive for cervical change when you're not even in labor yet I mean you're not even in labor okay so I know what they're gonna do they broke your water Right. Well, they asked okay. to break my water. And Perfect. I, said, no. <laughs> I was like, not yet. Let's wait and see what's going to happen a little bit. It's a round of applause, Jenna. Round of applause. Okay. <laughs> and some of that was a little bit of fear because I think I'm having a 10 pound baby. And I've always heard that once your water breaks, you lose your cushion and it's going to hurt so much more. And at this point, like I'm starting to feel the contractions, but still nothing that's like taking the breath out of me. It's okay. I can manage. And you were still anticipating an unmedicated birth. So at this point, I had accepted that if I was going to have a 10 pound baby, I was not making any promises. I wasn't close to an epidural, but I wasn't going to say 100% sign me up. I was going to see how I felt. Okay. I didn't really know. So we wanted to make my water. I said, let's give it a little bit longer. So they came back an hour later. And wouldn't you know, I was still three to four centimeters and 
she said, we really want to break your water. And I said, it's only been an hour. I know I'm not changing, but come on, let's see. And so she was like, what are you afraid of breaking your water? And I was like, well, first of all, is he in a good position? Is he engaged enough to break my water? Because I don't want to be that your next cord prolapse where you're rushing me to the ER because you broke my water too soon. And I don't think she, this is where I don't think she started not to like me so much because I started asking too many questions. And, well, it's not a popularity contest, Jenna. It's right? your birth. <laughs> Oops, and, sorry, you don't like me. Yeah. And she goes, well, I would never suggest breaking your water if he wasn't in a good position. So take that worry away. And I was like, oh, okay. And so then it was, I said, well, and to be honest with you, I'm afraid of what that's going to do, taking this to the next level. Because at this point, like I am okay, comfort wise. And if you break my water, I don't know where that's going to take me. And I'm a little nervous. And she was like, well, you're here to have a baby. So that's going to happen at some point anyhow. So why don't we just give you an epidural and break your water? And then you won't have to worry about that. And I was like, well, I'm not in that much pain yet for an epidural. So I don't know if I like that idea. So she and have they allowed you out of the bed? Like, have you been able to move at all? So I was hooked up to the IV and stuff. I was standing next to them. So I had asked for a ball to sit on a little bit. Um, and I, she brought me one at that point the nurse had and I was, I was kind of sitting on the ball standing at the side of the bed doing my own thing so we went back and forth a little bit and after like an hour she came back again I was still three to four centimeters she didn't like it so I said fine you can break my water so they broke my water and then two hours later I was still three to four centimeters <laughs> she didn't like that and they couldn't go up on my pitocin still because I was still having a regular contraction pattern on the monitor so then they wanted to put internal monitors in to monitor the contractions to make sure their intensity because I wasn't making much progress and at this point I threw out there and said this is taking forever to have no change and you just keep doing things do I just need a c-section because then just sign me up now and let's get it over with. <laughs> like, this is where it's all going. Why am I going to lay? I've been laying here for 12 hours with no progress since the Foley bulb came out. And you just want to keep pushing. But if nothing's going to change, do we just do a C-section and call it a day? And they were like, no, you're going to do it. Just taking your body time, your first time, mom. So, okay. So we kept going. Eventually... I started to feel a lot of pressure. They wanted to go up on the epidural. They had put internal monitors in and the strength of the contractions wasn't as, wasn't too high. So they were able to go up on the Pitocin a little bit. And so that's when the pain was getting worse. And I was really tired at this point. And I said, okay, just give me that epidural. I'll take a nap and we'll see where things go. So they did. The epidural was a whirlwind of an experience. He had a really hard time placing it. It took over an hour to get the epidural. Ooh. And as a nurse, I knew that that was not normal. No, that's like a uh, 10 minute procedure. Yeah. So I was freaking out a little bit and was like, are you having a hard time? What's going on back there? <laughs> Just, you know, really hard time. I don't think I got a great epidural because about two hours later, I started saying, I have an insane amount of pressure. I don't know what's going on. And like so in your butt or your vagina? Like where? Rectally. Rectally. Okay. Yeah. So they came back and checked me and they were like, you're about eight and a half centimeters. That I'm makes sense somewhere. why you have a lot of rectal pressure. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay. So we tried to like change positions up a bit and try to release some pressure. And it started to get to the point where I told the nurse after like an hour, I was like, 
it's a lot of pressure. Like I can feel every contraction rectally. It's a ton of pressure. And she was like, okay, well, let's check again. And I was like, okay. So they said that I was about just about 10 centimeters and they could probably push back a cervical lip if I wanted to try to start pushing. And I said, okay. Did they tell you the station of the baby? I don't remember. Okay. I was just wondering. I don't remember. I was going to interrupt you, Jenna, just really quick on that. An epidural, your epidural was working perfectly. An epidural takes away the sharp pain. It absolutely should not take away the extreme pressure. So as long as you're not feeling sharp, stabbing pain, the epidural is doing its job. But you should feel pressure. We want you to feel pressure because that's how we know how to push. So if I was your doula and you just said exactly what you said to me, I would be like, this epidural is working beautifully. (laughs) Which I know you don't want to hear as a birthing person, everyone that's listening. But epidurals take away sharp pain. They do not take away pressure, severe pressure, intense pressure. We want you to still feel that and you're going to still feel that. Yeah. And up until that point, I would have agreed. And then (laughs) it came time to start pushing and I lost my mind. I told them that the baby was trying to push out of my rectum. With every contraction, I had so much shooting, pulling pains in my rectum that I couldn't even focus on pushing anymore. I was like, it feels like everything is ripping apart. And I can't even focus on pushing because it hurts so bad. It's not just pressure anymore. It feels like things are tearing open. Did you push your epidural button? So I had at this point. So then they brought anesthesia back and redosed me. And I mean, it would work for 10 or 15 minutes. And then I'd just be right back to where I started with every contraction. It just felt like everything was ripping open. And that's because your baby was OP? Yeah. Sunny side up? Yep. Sounds about right. See, this is where doulas, like we don't even have to put our hands in your vagina to tell you your baby's position, right? We just go on symptoms, how you're feeling, even when you have an epidural, you know? Yeah. So they had you push. They had you push when your baby was OP. Yeah. So I pushed for two and a half hours and I call it really poor pushing. They told me I was pushing well, but I couldn't even focus on pushing with the amount of ripping that I felt like was going on, I was in such distress over that I couldn't even push. And then she wanted to lay my head back flat to push every time. And I was like, I can't breathe like that. Like on I need your you back? to sit up a little bit. Yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. I got this huge belly with this 10 pound baby. I can't breathe laying on my back. And then you want me to push like that? This isn't going to work. Who can? Everybody who's 40 weeks pregnant right now, try to lay flat on your back for a hot second and see how that feels. I mean, no way. Jenna, this is such a great story because it's so realistic, right? Like this is how it's done. Everything that you're saying, like this is how a 39 week induction goes when you do not hire a doula. Right? Like a doula, everything would have been different, but we would have 
you wouldn't have been pushing if you your butthole felt like it was ripping open because we would have been like, the baby's OP. We need to do walchers. We need to do exaggerated sideline. We need to rotate your baby. We need to get that head to plus two or plus three before we start pushing. I venture to say your baby was OP in a negative one station when you started pushing. And I didn't even do a vaginal exam. I don't need to read your medical record. I can tell you that, you know? So... So you push for three hours in what you would call as the birthing person, unproductive pushing. Yes. So what go on? Sorry. What happens then? So at that point, we're at about three hours and they come in and they're like, you're not really making progress. The baby's not moving. And I was not surprised. I just felt like this was just complete misery and nothing was going to work like this. And the doctor said, I really think your best bet at this point is a C-section. And I said, that is the last thing I want, but okay, because this isn't working. This isn't going to happen because I can't push a baby out like this. And so I said, that's fine. Let's go do a C-section. So at 1230 AM, we wheeled back to the OR and that parcel a lot of blur. I don't remember a lot of the C-section to tell you the truth. I had the epidural already. So they were able to just kind of load it up differently with different medication to change into a C-section. And Liam was born at 1.05 AM and was perfect and healthy. And the kicker was that he was seven pounds, two ounces. Oh my God. Of course he was. Yeah. And so your 11 pound baby was seven pounds, two ounces. Oh, that makes me so frustrated with science. I was like, where's my 10 and a half pound baby? But he's beautiful. (laughs) And like, well, he's much smaller than we thought. And I was like, okay, so what was going on? And that's when they're like, he was posterior and wedged in there pretty good. I don't think you were going to move him. Yeah. Oh, so that's frustrating. I qu- quickly was over it. I wasn't upset. I didn't feel upset about the way his birth happened because I was just so overjoyed that yeah. here was my little Liam. And he was on your chest and he got to stay there and he got to go home with you. Yes. Yes. And it was beautiful and wonderful. And he's still, he's over a year old now and he is still the light of every single day. And I always tell him, I don't take a single day for granted having him. And he, audience, he came on and showed his sweet little face and he's so cute. I mean, Jenna, you are very lucky. Do you guys want to have a big family? Um, no, my husband's 10 years, 11 years older than I am. Okay. So two or three is kind of the goal. So now the next battle will be figuring out if I even want to try a VBAC because that's what I've always wanted. So there's this big part of me, big part of my heart that calls trying that and doing things differently and hiring. Could you take Birth Story Academy and I'll walk you through a VBAC and then we'll hire an amazing doula in Canton, Ohio, who will like empower you through that and get your baby in a good position Yes. You know, yes, you're a great candidate for a VBAC. You are. You're a great candidate if that's what you want. There's also pa- something powerful about a scheduled cesarean section. So, you know, we let's keep in touch. 
over that. Let's keep in touch. I was just sort of going to joke with you because like this is the longest you've been without being pregnant 12 months. You know? No, it is. When I wasn't pregnant and done breastfeeding, I told my husband, I was like, I just want to have a glass of wine because I've spent the last two and a half years being pregnant or breastfeeding. And I just want to get my body back. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. We always joke. They joked with me at work too, all the time. They're like, well, you're always pregnant. And I was like, I know <laughs> pregnant with no baby. Yes. But now you're a stay at home mom with Liam. I am. Yes. I was, I just cherish every single moment with him. I am not ready to hand him over to somebody else to go to work. And we're able to figure that out for now. And I'm in no hurry. I might return to work one day. I do like being a nurse too, but for now, he's just right where I want to be. That's wonderful. Jenna, thank you for coming on and doing two episodes of the birth story podcast sabrina thank you so much for your leadership your mentorship and your guidance through part one of jenna's story and her three losses and then this beautiful redemptive rainbow baby i believe that we did a lot of education over the last two episodes also and there is a lot to, to learn from all of the journey and then this beautiful birth so thank you jenna thank you sabrina for being part of the birth story podcast and let's keep in touch jenna thank you okay i have a really amazing discount for you guys with anjahealth.com so it's a-n-j-a health.com they are my exclusive partner for cord blood and tissue banking. If you've listened to episode 88 of the podcast, where I interview the CEO, Catherine Cross, all about cord blood and tissue banking and the 1,000 questions that I had, my child has cerebral palsy from a birth injury. I cannot go back in time. It is one of my greatest regrets. So I partner with Anja Health because I'm so passionate about cord blood and tissue banking and I really want to teach you guys all about it. Code Birth Story gives you the biggest discount that there is available and they are committed to Birth Story always being the biggest discount. So right now it makes your kit only $20, which essentially covers shipping. So it's $180 off with Code Birth Story. So please consider cord blood and tissue banking. Look at anjahealth.com. Again, it's A-N-J-A Health. Dot com. And if you are going to bank your cord blood and tissue, then please use code BIRTHSTORY so you get the biggest and best discount that is available. Thank you for being part of the Birth Story family and listening to this episode. On Tuesdays every week are doula diaries, little snippets and tidbits from my week along with some teaching and education. And then on Thursdays, we meet here for our birth stories and our expert speakers. So thank you for being here and listening to the podcast twice a week. And if you are left wanting more, like Heidi, I've listened to all the episodes, I've read your entire book, then I hope you will meet me in Birth Story Academy and let me be your online childbirth educator to prepare you for your hospital birth, no matter what that looks like. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go. 
and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.